AI is such a broad term, isn't it? And you see all these startups say, hey, we're AI enabled, but you know, it's, it's such a, it's like saying we use technology, for example. It's like, well, what specific type of technology, how are you using it? And so my personal view from an, uh, an ethical perspective is the thinner the AI, the better. A very, very super thin layer that does one or two things and then you, you step back and then you iterate on top of that. Right, I'm kind of throwing a generative chat GPT layer on it and it runs away. So we are using this and our first step into AI is making mental health insights more bite-sized if you want quicker to digest so you can do some quite clever things on quantitative analysis so when we're tracking how we're feeling we can pick up on certain trends for example we're trending upwards or downwards we can do comparative you know is how you're feeling this month on average compared to february we can also do um, theme analysis and sentiment analysis on the journal entries Thank you so much for clicking on this episode of Millennial Entrepreneur. The ambition of the podcast is to show relatable stories from young entrepreneurs doing some incredible things to inspire the next generation, including you listening wherever you are. We've been doing this podcast for over three years and the ambition has not changed. The only thing that has changed is the scale of where we want to go. We want to bring on bigger guests for you guys to show more and more relatable and inspiring stories from young entrepreneurs across the world. The majority of you guys listening haven't subscribed to the podcast yet. All you have to do is click that subscribe button wherever you're listening on YouTube, Apple Podcasts, Spotify, and now allow us to bring on big guests and ask the questions to them that you really want to hear. And it really is that simple. So thank you again for clicking on the podcast and enjoy the episode. Hey, Sean, how are you? Hey, Sina, I'm very well. Thank you so much. How are you? I'm very well. Thank you so much for coming on the podcast. It's an absolute pleasure to have you on. Um, And I really want to start off by saying that we've had a few episodes recently talking about mental health, founder mental health, and it's something that is very important to the channel. And um, I know, especially because we we focus on young entrepreneurs and showcasing the, the the difficult times of entrepreneurship as well, more as well as the successes, you know, digging deeper into the mental health side of things is very important. And so we had, we had, we've had a few guests and Maya being one of them as well, that I know you guys enjoyed um, listening to. And so with you coming on, Sean, is something that I think, yeah, plays plays on all of that stuff. Um, but, but firstly, before we go into your, your personal story, where did, I guess, like, what is mind data? So yes, absolutely. Um, something very close to my heart. So mind data is a platform that supports both the client or patient, depending on the context and the mental health professional. Um, so we provide uh, a digital tool to enable uh, a client to track their experiences, how they're feeling. Um, we share this insight directly with a mental health professional. We, we have a goal to not only make human-to-human therapy more effective, but our goal in the long run is to make therapy uh, proactive instead of solely reactive. Yeah, I, th- I think that's the key thing, especially from like Maya's episode as well. It was like proactive um, mental health rather than reactive. And I think as well, just just health in general has taken that turn of, you know, physical health. Again, before it was very, very reactive, whereas now it's more proactive and you get a lot of, you know, preventative measures in order to stop certain diseases and certain, you know, um, you know, to stop this. Yeah, stop that sort of thing. Um, so now that we're going towards the same transition for mental health. Why is mind data so important in today's age? Well, the first, I think the first thing is we, we see these, you know, technology is really kind of meeting uh, mental health support head on. And when I was first considering building a mental health technology, I realized that quite a lot of the, the apps out there or, or, or online platforms are almost somewhat replacing the human to human element. So whether it's 
kind of a virtual therapy at a distance. Nothing wrong with that, my God. But um, or you know, there's the kind of AI chatbot therapy in your your pocket kind of thing. Um, the reason why I'm a big proponent of what we're doing at Mind Data is we believe in having a kind of a very thin technology wrapper around a human to human connection. We'll come on to it later, Sina, but my life was saved by, you know, my relationship that I had with Betty, my incredible therapist. And so my passion of technology was to try to meet that experience and amplify the human to human side of things. And I think that in this day and age where things are becoming more disconnected and more digital, I think we should be using technology to enhance the human element of therapy. Yeah, and I, will, I, I really want to dig deeper into the sort of like the, the relationship between technology and mental health, because there's been so much on the news in terms of, you know, AI helping mental health, but then a lot of people are kind of quite skeptical of it because it, it, because they say it doesn't have that human connection. But then other people are like, how can you tell the difference? And there's a, there's a whole, you know, discussion around this. And I definitely do want to talk about it because it is very important. In terms of your story, so where did it all start? So um, it... It started with my middle brother, Lee. He's a, you know, a couple of years younger than me. He was dating a girl called Holly. They met when they were 10. You know, they had their ninth anniversary when they're 19. You know, real childhood sweethearts. And in 2014, she out of nowhere was diagnosed with a stage four glioblastoma, which is a, a cancerous brain tumour. And by the November, she passed away. and She was only 21. And so I did the classic male thing of strong and silent. Uh, I thought that I needed to be there for, for my mum, who had kind of lost an adopted daughter. My young brother had lost the love of his life. And I thought the best thing that I could do was, while they're crying on my shoulder, literally, that I shouldn't be crying um, either. And so I shut my emotions down. And eventually, in early 2015, that caught up with me. And I became uh, suicidal and severely depressed. My kind of world crumbled around me. Um, and uh, I had, like I said, I had my life saved by an amazing therapist at university called Betty. And for the next 18 months, I would see Betty every every Monday at three o'clock and just gently transitioned away from suicidal ideation through to, you know, not a perfect place, but a better place. And it was during that time that I made it my life's goal to improve the mental health of one million people around the world, basically have a purpose that was greater than my circumstances. I, I do want to talk about this a bit because it is very important to the story. I guess um, in that in that phase where you were, I guess, being there for your, for your mother, for your brother, um, I guess... What were the feelings you were ignoring? Like, what was what was the what were the the feelings that were being suppressed? Well, do you know what the first thing was? Vulnerability that I was deliberately switching off. Um, I I truly thought that I would be a burden to those people around me by opening up. So the first thing I was suppressing was this idea of just being open of how hard it was. So that was the the number one thing. Um, honesty and transparency of just asking for help. I don't think I'm very well. Um, how are you feeling about this? Um, and now in retrospect, I think that would have been a great thing for my girlfriend at the time, my brother, my mum, you know, shared experience. And I denied them of that by not being open about that and uh, kind of just being a mirror or a sounding board, shall we say. So I was definitely shutting down um, the acknowledgement of how low I was feeling, but not only externally, that for sure was happening internally as well. It was so painful and uncomfortable that when those, you know, kind of 4am thoughts would bubble up, 
I would actively just ignore them, just push them away. And it was a, a degree of weakness. You know, if I'm being kind to myself, it was naivety, ignorance. Um, but it was so hard to to face those feelings head on just in my own mind that I would ignore them as well. So, you know, those those feelings of anxiety and helplessness that were bubbling up and you know they translated to those secondary symptoms of you know loss of interest feeling very tired no excitement so they that's how I think it started that was the catalyst Mm. and then from that moment how how bad did it get and how long did it take to get to that stage it actually happened quite rapidly um I mean I think it's almost I guess a kind of analogy would be planting a a tree or or a a plant um you you put the seed into the ground and seemingly nothing is happening um you know for months so she died in middle of November and right November December January February into March even on the surface nothing was really happening um but once it kind of came out uh, and I really started to just shut down it was exponential the the rate at which I just then became suicidal and um you know my suicidal planning was to overdose on on pills um I didn't have the confidence um it's it's very weird by the way when when I was suicidal it was very non-emotional by the way I don't think this is maybe spoken about um enough for me it it was logical it was very much what am I going to have for breakfast what am I going to wear how am I going to end my life? It was very cold, very simple. And I kind of logically thought, I'm not going to, you know, hang myself. I'm, I don't think I have the confidence to, to do anything to, to my wrists. Uh, pills seemed like an easy way of doing it. Um, I've now I've now learned from my subsequent therapist that actually it's a quite a quite horrendous way to go potentially. Um, but at the time, that's what I was planning. And so from first kind of, I'm feeling a little bit tired, and withdrawing from my friends, you know, kind of the March, you know, by eight, late April, May, that's the situation I was in. It, it happened externally very quickly, I would say. I, I do want to talk about this slightly because it is it is very important to, to both yourself as well as people listening as well as your business. And I think with, with men, there is a big thing when it comes to people, like men should speak more about mental health. I, I kind of think that's an oversimplification because... I think the issue that I think maybe this is my personal experience of just talking to to friends of mine, it's it's not always the fact that like you want like you can talk more. Sometimes it's like reflecting internally and having the the confidence to look at yourself and be like, what am I actually feeling right now? And that's that's I think what what the the real issue is with when it comes to men is not talking more. It's more trying to understand yourself as to why you're feeling sad, why you're feeling anxious, and all these underlying emotions. And I think. You kind of talked about it there. It was very logical to you. You didn't really like know, I think, deep down how you were feeling. It was more like, this is just how I feel. This is what it's going to be. And I think that's, I think that's the, defin- the, the, the difference of what I think it's just the oversimplification of men should talk more. I, I totally agree. I mean, it's you, when you break that, uh, that algorithm down of right, the, the outcome is, is men talking to each other. What are the inputs? And well, the inputs are what are you talking about? You have to have some degree of self awareness, emotional intelligence to articulate how you're feeling and say, Hey, Cena, I'm feeling XYZ. If you haven't got XYZ, what am I going to present to you? So you're absolutely right. It's, a, it's an, an inside game, isn't it? That's where it starts. Mm. So that's what, so what drove you to, to seek help and, and to have therapy? Um, it was actually my, the, the catalyst was my professor at uni, um, a, a 
a, a real gent called Nigel Adams, um, and and he he strongly recommended that I go and seek you know some help, just have a conversation. He had obviously picked up on things that I was ignoring clearly, um, and he said, look, I think you should just go and chat to well-being. Uh, I've never really been aware of what well-being was, and um, and and he was the one that pushed me in that direction. I had some amazing support from again my my girlfriend at the time, my friends, but they can only work with what you're giving them, you know? So if you're not opening up and God knows I was not, you know, there's only so much you can do to help. Um, Nigel was the one that pushed me in that direction. And, um, and Betty, you know, coming back to that, that point you just made, she was the first person I think in my life that not only asked how I was feeling, but why I was feeling that. And when mm, she asked me, that's the differentiation. Mind. Yeah, absolutely. No one had ever asked me, why are you feeling sad down? Whatever it is just kind of opened up a whole new Pandora's box of, oh my, I can, I can reason, I can ask why I'm feeling a certain emotion. I thought they were just fixed. So yeah, absolutely. That, so Nigel was the, the catalyst for me, bless him. I think that's like one of the key takeaways people should take from this is like, yeah, reframe the question from why, like, sorry, from how to why. Um, I think that's such a powerful way of reframing. Uh, so I want to move on to your business more because of, of just like time, because so you you seek you seek therapy and that that kind of saved your life as you mentioned before. At what stage did you think that okay this is this is bigger than myself? There needs to be more, you know, there needs to be more structure around helping people. I well, firstly, I realised that my experience of going through therapy during that experience was something that uh, would be great to improve. Um, even though therapy isn't broken, it saved my life. It doesn't mean fixing, but there are always opportunities to improve things, no matter how good they are. One of the things that stood out to me that was common amongst Betty or Peter, you know, my therapist outside of university, um, was uh, the structure around, you know, you sit down with your therapist and, uh, and you say, you know, Sean, good to see you. How are you? you know, what's been going on? Now to you and I see that's quite an easy, you know, question to answer. When I was suicidal and depressed, I found it incredibly difficult to answer. I had, you know, severe kind of memory loss. I had recency bias. Um, I didn't know how to articulate certain things. And I found that quite um, a, a broken way to get into therapy. So I'd kind of stumble through the first 10 minutes of every session, trying to piece together inefficient things. Eventually, we kind of latch onto something that we'd then talk. And for me, as, as a patient, as a client, if you will, I always found the first 10 minutes therapeutic. And then we get into therapy and they're very different things. And, you know, it's not the end of the world if you don't have a time limit. I'm happy to just kind of mundle my way through kind of my experiences. But, you know, God knows at 10 minutes too, this session is over, Sean. So I always thought there's got to be a, a better way of doing this. Um, and I knew there was a problem at the time because almost every single time the next day, I would have something pop into my head and say, God, I really wanted to speak to Betty about that really annoying that I forgot about it so I I knew that the things that I was speaking about in the therapy session they weren't the most important things they just happened to be the things that I remembered so I knew straight away that there must be a better way of of doing this quite early on so it was more the the the, the and again like I don't want to use the word problem but it's just I guess I guess the, the problem would be to make it more efficient or more scalable in terms of like reaching more people or, you know, solve things in a different way to just like, it's a massive problem. But with therapy, the, the main thing that you were solving was the timing of, you know, sessions are limited. There's a limited resource. 
uh, that that can be maximized. And that's where you guys were going to come in. So that was the main issue you were solving there was like the time limits. Yeah, I think it was a combination. You're absolutely right. Time limits, because that puts a pressure on anything that you're talking about, but uh, also the effectiveness of of, uh, of therapy as well. It's not to say that therapy is not clearly effective, but um, I wanted to make sure that I was talking with Betty about the right things at the right time and spend enough time on those things. Um, and that's that's fundamentally what I want to be able to do. And that's why you know, the digital journal of, of enabling me to track in the moment what I was thinking and feeling to improve my self-awareness so I could come prepared, but funneling these insights to Betty so that she can come prepared. And, you know, that kind of opener to say, Sina, good to see you. I know that you've had a challenging week. This happened and this happened. It's your session. We can talk about whatever you want, but these are the two things that stood up to me. Yes, absolutely. Let's talk about that. And kind of we're making the most of each session that way. Mm. so what is so where does mind my days come into this yeah so um in the background i I graduated from university i was then on the founding um team of an hr technology company called clear review nothing to do with mental health uh we scaled that company and we we were acquired two years ago and that's uh, that was the time where i really thought do you know what i i've got some good experience with the startup now good experience with technology how do i really bring this million lives you know, a thing to, to fruition. So I created this minimum viable product just to prove the theory, put it in the hands of real world therapists and some great case studies that came out of it and said, Sean, we're talking about some really interesting things that we, we weren't previously because of what we're seeing on mind data from both sides of the couch, if you will. Um, and so, uh, uh, you know, again, in the back, in the background, I was I stayed on at the acquiring company as a director, um, and I was there for a year while I was kind of proving the concept. And then I, I left that job last April, put my life savings into scaling this. Um, and then in April, we raised uh, a pre-seed round. Um, and that that's helping us to accelerate our commercial viability. So what we're trying to do now is say, hey, we've got this great technology. We know that it conceptually works. We've, we've got the proof there. What we want to understand now is where does it work? So we're now piloting with sports organizations to help them become more proactive with athlete mental health universities doing the same thing with students and funneling that insight to well-being teams um we're, we're dabbling with some private organizations with employees as well uh, and of course maintaining that core uh, user set of uh, private therapists with their clients as well so that's kind of where we're at at the moment and you know over the next year we're going to be scaling uh, two or three of these verticals and really accelerate you know say a sports team and university application how does that actually work, though, in terms of like practically and also like why is the data side of things so important? Well, the data side. So when we look at more of an organizational setting, let's say so we can step outside of, you know, one on one therapist example here. Um, you can do some really clever things with with data once you've got that. So even if it's just something as simple as being able to track progress over time, it was something that an individual going through therapy generally, certainly my experience, quite blind to you know, kind of mean I know that I'm making some intrinsic progress over six months I'm generally feeling better but I don't have kind of uh, an objective lens on the actual progress I can't really look back at what was troubling me four months ago so this idea of, of having an ability to to analyze the, the data on yourself if you will is really important for that sense of self-progress 
But when we look at organizations, let's take a university as an example. What we can what we can do is not only um, support well-being teams to back up you know, the, the impact that they're having on students. They can go to, you know, senior leaders and say, look, here's the data. With this cohort, this is where we were feeling generally in February, February let's say. Here's what we've been doing. And, and here's the data that we're having afterwards. Mental health generally doesn't have that kind of element because it's so subjective, it's so emotional. And so it can wrongly be seen as kind of a bit of a soft thing that we do very reactive, sick people come in, we treat them and they go out and hopefully we see the ramifications of that in, you know, graduation rates, for example. And I think that we can flip that to be more of a data driven approach to, to bring, you know, well-being professionals to the, the senior leadership table. But also what we can do is if we start tracking individuals before they're in therapy, this is where that proactivity comes in. The goal will be to bring in a student when they come from a 10 to a 7, let's say, and proactively reach out they mainly need one or two sessions to get them back on the road rather than say like i was a zero or a one out of ten and say i am devastatingly bad i'm going to need a year of therapy to get back now so yeah that, that's kind of my view on why data is, is really important yeah i completely agree with you and it, it is the transition that that's happening in health in general like you've seen things like fitness trackers and, and watches and things like that that track heart rates track blood pressure ha- track all these things continuously as we you know live our daily lives but there is no mental health tracker there's no way of knowing your mental health today compared to say last week and um you don't know what causes mental health to spike or like you know to, to get worse or you don't you don't know right um because again it goes down to that question of why am i feeling like this um, and I think with, with something like data, so you can actually, you know, track, track yourself and then uh, an organization or a university or a sports team can track it as well from your behalf. There's more accountability and there's more sort of, yeah, it's, it, it's, it's simply more effective, isn't it? So the, the one thing, the other question I want to ask you is, uh, we alluded to this at the beginning of the episode was, was AI. So, um, are you planning on using AI in anything within mental health? Yes, absolutely. In fact, we're, we're, we're starting to do it now, actually. So the one thing that I would say is um, AI is such a, a, a broad term, isn't it? And you see all these startups say, hey, we're AI enabled. But, you know, it's, it's such a uh, it's like saying we use technology, for example. So well, what specific type of technology? How are you using it? Um, and so my my personal view from an, uh, an ethical perspective is the thinner the AI, the better. A very, very super thin layer that does one or two things and then you, you step back and then you iterate on top of that. Ryan kind of throwing a generative chat GPT layer on it and it runs away. So we, we are using this and our first step into AI is, is making um, mental health insights more um, bite-sized, if you will, and quicker to digest. So you can do some quite clever things on quantitative analysis. So when we're tracking how we're feeling, we can pick up on certain trends, for example, trending upwards or downwards. We can do comparative, you know, is how you're feeling this month on average compared to February. We can also do um, theme analysis and sentiment analysis on the journal entries. So when we when we look at a sports team, for example, or a cohort of students, we can say, here are the top three categories driving lower mental health across your cohort. Um, and so not only we, can we provide that for individuals so they can become more aware, but we can bubble that up and provide a snapshot for larger groups of people. So that's our first step into AI, and then we'll continue to iterate on top of that 
So you use, and again, yeah, I completely agree with you. AI has been used as a buzzword now in terms of it's in every business. It might not even be in every business, but they say it's in, in, in their business. And and like, yeah, there's generative AI and there's the AI that you're using, which is more data analysis, um, which is actually the more older form of AI that's kind of being forgotten about because the generative AI has kind of sprung up. Um, so I completely see that. The other question I want to ask you, because it's hot on everyone's lips, is does generative AI play a, a role within therapy and mental health? I think it can. I, I, I truly think it can. I think that we need to be careful about how this plays a role, what it looks like. The one pillar that we built Mind Data on is that we are not a therapy platform. Um, we'll, we'll never diagnose, we'll never provide therapy insights direct to the end user. We are a tool to be used by the patient and the therapist to enable them to have more effective therapy. So my view is if we do introduce, which is inevitable, you know, generative AI is going to come in. My, my view would all, always be, let's not replace the human therapist. And, and I can talk to, a, you know, let's imagine we've got generative, you know, chat GPT as a therapist, let's say, for example, that chat could probably say the exact same things that Betty would ask me the exact same questions. The one thing that you can't replace um, is lived experience. There is something when Betty's looking me in, in the eyes and I know as a human being, she's been through a divorce. She's been through heartbreak. She's been through challenging times. She lost her job when she was 20. Let's say there is something that that is so human about that that really helped me through my journey of not feeling alone and i think that we're a long way from um artificial emotional intelligence uh this cold logical ai i still don't think is is going to replace human uh support people for a long time yeah i mean there's views on both sides for sure and i think the the only counter argument i could give is would be people be able to tell the difference? That's the only thing. It's like, yes, they don't have that lived emotion, but they can certainly pretend very well that they do. Um, so that's that's the only counter argument. I don't know the answer, truly. It's a very difficult one. AI is evolving so quickly. But in terms of your business, you're using it more for the data analysis part of things. And it's very important to do that, right? It gives it gives more actionable, thing, like, um, actionable tips, I guess, in terms of, what organizations should be doing and what individuals should be doing in terms of like just just looking at the data is probably not enough it's like how can you actually fix this and giving more insights around that um I, yeah what's what's next for mind data so the next thing is um we're going to continue with these pilots um on both sides of the pond here in the uk and over in the states um the goal is to prove commercial viability and where we have the, the greatest impact. Um, you start classic founder story where you start with the founder's assumption. You know, you try to prove yourself wrong or right, whichever way you're going. And so over the next six months, you know, seeing the effectiveness of these pilots and then ramping up to a next funding round where we can take the, these insights, take this uh, traction and say, hey, here's what we've seen. Here's what we've learned. And actually, here's what we're going to be doubling down on. We're going to be taking this to every university in the US, for example, and here's what we need the money for. So as part of that, we'll be um, enhancing the platform um, to meet those needs and the marketing and branding to get out there and expanding the team to support those. So um, at the moment, we're being very careful about what we're learning, make sure we're doing our right due diligence, 
and then we'll kind of inject that rocket fuel to say let's run with these two verticals uh, and and aim for that so that's that's over the next six to nine months sounds fantastic sean sean it was such a pleasure having you on the podcast talking about everything mind data and your, your personal experience thank you so much for sharing that uh hopefully it, it helps people i know it will and also inspire people in terms of you know mental health businesses um how can people stay in touch with you and what you're doing thanks Ina. yeah that, that's very kind thank you so um you contact me on my email or my inbox is always open so sean s-e-a-n at minddata.io that's my personal email um you can keep up to date on my linkedin which is uh, just search sean ruane r-u-a-n-e uh, i post a lot on there about my founder's journey mental health um, they're the top two you can find out minddata.io is our website for more specific things about mind data all right, fantastic. Sean, thank you so much again for coming on the podcast. And yeah, we'll speak very soon. Thank you so much. Thanks, Ian.